0: Hello, you're listening to No Such Word As Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. If you love all things marine life, then you will be very excited to hear from today's guest, Francesca Trotman. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
0: I'm so excited for everyone to hear about all of the things that you have to say. But for people who perhaps aren't familiar with your work or don't know who you are, could you introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Um, yeah. So my name's Francesca Trotman, and um, I am a marine biologist and underwater photographer. Uh, I run a marine conservation organisation called Love the Oceans, and that's kind of my main uh, job and joy. Um, And then I also do underwater photography as a second job because charity work doesn't pay you very well. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I'm currently completing my Ph.D. um, going back to academia after like a five year break. Um, And uh, yeah, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Love the Oceans is based in Mozambique. So I spend my time split halfway between each country. but yeah I think that's that's pretty much me in a nutshell.
0: Yeah and where did your passion for marine life come from?
1: Oh good question. Um, I don't know from like a super <laughs> young age um, my family's not particularly outdoorsy I'm definitely um, the most outdoorsy mm-hmm. <laughs> out of, out of my family. Um, when when I was eight my mum took me to the London Aquarium for my eighth birthday um and I think that was like really a game changer for me um mm-hmm. seeing I think it was raggy tooth sharks at the time uh swimming around um and the guy that was just cleaning the tank collected a shark's tooth for me and gave it to me oh, wow. uh, of the you know um that had been shed kind of thing And I remember keeping that in a box for like five years um, and being like super obsessed with sharks. I think because, I think that initial like obsession began because everyone, sharks have such a bad rap and um, everything everything that is about sharks is about fear generally for like young kids. Uh, I think times have changed a little bit now, I'd like to think. Um, But I think initially like, back then in like the noughties it was um quite fear-mongering information about yeah. sharks so I think I found these animals that were just swimming around minding their own business that looked extremely graceful um quite fascinating and then from there I learned to scuba dive when I was 13 um That's and obviously yeah yeah I was really lucky um my we were on holiday and my family were like, we're going to do this as a family thing. And like, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity You'll probably never do it again. (laughs) Little did they know. (laughs) Um, So I was really lucky to have that opportunity. And that was pretty much a game changer for me. Um, I was hooked from then on. And then my main like kind of fueling of uh, love of the marine environment was definitely through diving and like actually interacting with it myself. Um, obviously I did like continue the like interest the theoretical interest in the ocean shall we say Mm -hmm. through like um, books and documentaries and things like that and I went to study marine biology at university so um, it definitely was there academically as well but the practical kind of passion of it definitely was fed through scuba diving.
0: Yeah so when you came back from that vacation how did you you know make time to get places to continue diving and obviously to get certified and stuff. How, what was that like?
1: Um, I didn't for a while, I must say. Like, I think when you're that young, you're just, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's your folks decision, right? mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're like 14, you don't really have a huge say on where you go and when you go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was another two years until I dived again, but mm-hmm. it had caught my kind of imagination um so I kind of kept going on documentaries and things and then I got to dive again when I was 16 and then I did my advanced at that stage and just started um kind of like climbing the I'm not sure I necessarily knew consciously that I was like climbing the diving ladder of qualifications I think obviously I did but like I didn't I in my head I don't think I was properly building a career yet maybe I was I don't know 16 you think you know everything (laughs) <laughs> um so uh, I think at, at one point I just wanted to dive and travel and play guitar yeah, right. and like not have a career I just want to like go around the planet being a beach bum <laughs> uh, I mean think, I think like, that's
0: that's something that I love so much about talking to so many people who have managed to turn their hobbies into passions and then into eventual career goals, uh, which I think is fantastic. So, you know, you kept all of that passion going both in, pra- in practice and also in theory until you studied marine biology. Was it a given that you were going to study marine biology or were was there ever a conversation about you doing something else?
1: Yeah, it was a conversation. It was a short one. <laughs> and there was a conversation <laughs> about me doing something else. Um I was also really into music. Uh, I was a music scholar at my school and I really wanted to pursue that. Uh, my folks were not so keen. Um, and so they were basically like, look, do something more reliable mm-hmm. as a kind of job at the end. Uh get the degree in something reliable. Um, and then if you still love music, you can you can do music yeah. but you'll have a degree that you know gives you a, a bit more kind of options I guess Mm -hmm. um so yeah I thought I was going to come out and be like still want to be a musician and then got distracted en route at university and (laughs) haven't really looked back um so yeah now I'm definitely a marine biologist through and through and I barely do any music anymore so
0: (laughs) was there ever a moment in your university career where you really thought yeah this is what I'm meant to be doing um uh,
1: ooh, that's a good question. Um, I guess I really enjoyed marine vertebrates and learning about, like, the big stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. I've never been one for, like, I understand plankton and I know that I needed to get to grips with the biology and chemistry of it because mm-hmm. plankton is, like, the food of the ocean and, and everything is kind of grows from it. But, um I think probably when I went to Mozambique for the first time was when I was like okay I'm actually really interested in like shark fisheries and understanding like exploitation rates mm-hmm. which if someone had told me that I'd be interested in like stock levels of fish when I was a kid I would have been like wow that sounds really boring <laughs> but um actually Um, like yeah yeah, getting to grips with that was like really interesting Mm -hmm. because uh, the shark fin trade is pretty gnarly and a global issue Um, and something that I had been reading about and stuff for ages and also obviously my obsession with sharks so it kind of like all accumulated in in yeah that and understanding or trying to understand and collecting data on um, the shark fin trade in Mozambique to understand the fin trade Mm -hmm. Um, that was probably the big the big game changer
0: yeah and what where what point did photography come into it for you? Um,
1: I think when you're a kid you're always like uh, curious about things. Uh, I I wasn't ever super into photography as a child like I didn't really my family I think my mum had a camera of some sort but it wasn't like a. we didn't have any photographers in the family or anything like mm-hmm. that I didn't really have much access to like cameras and stuff. And it wasn't really something that had come on my radar too much. I think definitely diving first and then discovering photography was a massive help because your diving becomes your second nature before you even think about adding equipment to that and having to think about like the settings on the equipment and where you position yourself to get a photo and things. Um, I was... Uh, how old was I I think I was 20 19 or 20 uh and I took a photography internship in Mozambique and that's yeah. where I really got to go, so like the basics of it mm-hmm. um and got experience uh diving with a camera because you could use lots of different cameras and stuff of people there um so that was great and getting that experience was really useful and then from there um, I invested <laughs> is the term to use because the gear is so expensive, yeah. um, <clears throat> I invested in my first camera and um, housing and then started to shoot as much as I could to get experience just basically whenever I was diving which f- for work was was a fair amount at that point point. Um, and then bought strobes which are like underwater lights uh, which light up your subject and allow you to create basically a lot better images um and then from there I think I started taking jobs as a photographer and then yeah that just kind of took off on its own and now it just ticks over nicely
0: (laughs) yeah you know it must be a challenge as well though you know just being able to dive just with the scuba diving equipment is quite a challenge in itself and then now you're adding a camera on top of that what was that like to kind of hone those skills together
1: I think by that point I'd already done my professional diving qualification so I was already like fairly comfortable in the water um so it wasn't too much of a stretch for me like I was able to kind of switch my brain completely to concentrating on the camera because yeah. all of the other stuff like looking at deco time and air consumption and depth and all of that stuff was like super second that second, second nature mm-hmm. um it's like for me, at that point, I think it was like as easy as checking your iPhone for things like it just like, you know, almost second nature. You just do it without even really thinking. Um And so I was able to just concentrate on the camera. And I think that's what when people start to learn underwater photography, if you're learning diving and photography at the same time, that can be really overwhelming. Um, So I would always suggest to like hone your diving skills mm. before you like you know start messing around with the camera underwater because ultimately it's I've seen people do try and do both at the same time and unfortunately a lot of the time the wildlife suffers because they don't realize that they're Mm. descending and then they kneel on a piece of coral or something without realizing it because they're actually just staring at the camera and trying to work out how to get change a setting or something Um, so I think it definitely is crucial to like be a competent diver I've also seen uh, people that have never used a camera before, like not not very, you know, camera interested, and then they've been given a rig underwater, and someone's just said, "Look, I've got to go up. You can take my camera, for instance," mm-hmm. um, and they have like five minutes to snap some pics, and the settings are set for them, but they have the skills. Diver wise and the knowledge around the animal that they're shooting uh, yeah. to know where the animal is and what position to be in to get the best photo and they have the ability with their buoyancy to be able to do that. So I've actually seen a lot better photos from people that are good divers and then learnt photography second versus the other way around. Um, yeah. Just doing underwater is like just such a foreign environment. <laughs>
0: I know like there must be so many factors that come into play you know you mentioned a couple of them not only the settings and the camera but also you know your buoyancy and understanding where the animal is and where you are and where the light is so what was it like learning all of that and kind of honing those skills?
1: Um, I think it was definitely scary because it's all expensive equipment so you mm. don't want to it up um, and it's definitely for me it was a case of I, I learned by doing so it mm-hmm. was a case of like physically doing it and seeing what comes out yeah. and what doesn't and then what worked and what didn't um so like I can learn I do learn partly from you know like talking about it and reading but I've de- I'm definitely a practical person so I learned by doing um and so for me it was about getting as much experience as possible um before I could take a good photo basically but for like I would say at least two years <laughs> My photos were like pretty terrible um, before I started to get a bit better. Um, and then and now like professionally through uh, my professional experience, I've learned a lot. Uh, pretty much every photography job I've taken, I've learned some kind of major new skill or new experience. Um, so like I worked in Egypt and my camera housing was partial flooding, partially flooding like every single time I dived um so I learned to shoot with a partial flood which shouldn't ever be something that people learn but also is extremely useful to know so that you don't panic as well underwater and things like that um so yeah I don't know uh, there's definitely a lot to be said just for like getting experience and getting out yeah. there as much as you can
0: I mean, I think a lot of people these days are, we live in an age of immediacy, you know, everything is very readily available. So I think people forget the value and the importance of really dedicating your time to hone your skills and understanding the fact that, hey, this isn't going to happen overnight. You know, if this is something that you're really passionate about, you know, work for it and, and dedicate the time to it. Are there any early shoots or even since then that stand out in your mind for you? Definitely
1: Egypt um, and the partial flooding <laughs> was terrifying. <laughs> um, and then, I don't know, I think Indonesia was stands out because it's Indonesia. And Raja Ampat, in particular, is like the holy grail of corals. Yeah. Um, so for any marine biologist, I think everyone has that on their list, right? Um, so being able to kind of tick that off was really amazing. Um and seeing all those animals and all those corals it's very uh Finding Nemo-esque in terms of like (laughs) traffic jams of of, uh, fish and stuff that was very cool um and then I I think probably Mexico the cenotes in Mexico were probably extremely near the top of the kind of recommended list because it's freshwater, so the visibility is like I don't know 50 meters possibly further yeah. um and you can do a few different types of cenotes but you can do the glacial ones which you literally can swim for hours in pitch black with just a torch with like your instructor and your buddy and explore these caverns that are just like mind-blowing um and then you can do the like kind of deep caverns which is where all the free diving photos are taken um and you can yeah explore these and you've got like this, the kind of opening of the uh, cenote, which is just jungle overhead and these amazing like shards of light coming down. So for a photographer, it's it's quite dreamy. Um, so yeah, that's definitely near the top as well.
0: And at what point did you start thinking about founding Love the Oceans?
1: Um, so Love the Oceans actually came about pretty much, so I'm just going to put my laptop charger in, Um, Love the Oceans came about pretty much um, alongside the photography I would say. Um, So I mentioned that I went to Mozambique um, on a photography internship and while I was there, I saw sharks being killed and the and the kind of sh- the shark fin industry there, yeah. um, and so I wanted to understand uh, the complexity of it and also the extent. I would say, um, so I, I was studying marine biology at university at that point, point. Um, and so I went back to university and found a supervisor that would supervise me for my masters, um, and. Found one and took three research assistants out with me the following year to understand well just to collect more data on the shark fin trade. um And then I wrote my masters up, uh and from there, uh, my masters said pretty much the exact thing you would think in terms of the sustainability of the fin trade, yeah. um, i.e., not sustainable. Uh, but I didn't have enough data to publish any papers or lobby the government, and so I. Um, I started Love the Oceans initially just to uh, continue data collection, uh, specifically the shark fisheries data collection. But uh, the more I read into successful conservation strategies, the more I realized that we needed a multi-pronged approach. And I met Pascal, uh, who's our community outreach manager, within a month of working on the ground. And then um, Andrea came on board and she's one of our directors within the first year. Um, and then those guys kind of helped build out the organization. Um, and then it's been kind of a slow evolution to where we're at today. Um, so Love the Oceans kind of came about simultaneously. That was back in uh, I think the official date was like 2014 um, of incorporation, mm-hmm. but um, we started like work on the ground in 2015. Um, so I think it it kind of all evolved together. Um, and then the photography came became a useful tool with the NGO to kind of uh, capture some of the stories and um, be able to communicate the work that we were doing.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what kind of, you said that in the beginning you started it because you wanted more of the data collection, you know, you obviously wanted to make a difference for the sharks that, you know, called those waters home. So what has it grown into since its inception?
1: uh, Now we do a lot of different stuff. Um, So we have we still have that fisheries data set so the shark fisheries um, but from that we've now kind of do a lot of different areas of research and all the areas of research inform regulations and conservation action. So our overall mission now is to establish the area as a marine protected area Um, and so all of the research is about like what types of fishing should be allowed in that Mm -hmm. area and kind of that proposal uh in total but also uh yeah individual kind of legislative pieces within the protected area so now we do the fisheries research has continued but we also do humpback whales ocean trash marine megafauna turtles coral reefs um whale sharks and mantas so it's like a, a broad range and then uh our community outreach side is um equally just as important because the model that we're using for the protected area is a locally led one so you need a community with a skill set to be able to manage their marine assets successfully Um, and that's really where the kind of capacity building elements come in Um, so we work very closely with the local community we run ocean literacy classes uh, for children and for adults we have um, swimming lessons so uh, around 95 percent of people in our area can't swim which is a big problem because there's a lot of drownings and therefore a lot of fear of the ocean. And when you're talking about trying to protect something, people don't really want to protect something that they're terrified of. of, yeah. Yeah, so swimming is a really important kind of mechanism in marine conservation. So we have that um and then we have a internship program for local kids that is attached to that so when the kids get to the advanced classes they're around the age of 16 and they can become what we call an ocean conservation champion and ocean conservation champion can get further qualifications so we sponsor them high school um like diving driving swimming instructor uh any kind of like a lot ocean-based activities because mm. with the creation of the marine protected area the job creation is going to be within the marine ecotourism space and if people can get jobs they have more kind of financial luxury which enables them to have the brain space to think about um conservation because when you're living hand to mouth every day you don't have that luxury to think about conservation uh, so creation is actually like a key part of our work um And then we have our uh, sustainable fishing project, which is about eliminating nets in our area and our gender equity project, uh, which is obviously around um, women and creating equal opportunities. And then we also have, I'm trying to think, our alternative livelihoods project as well, which is identifying um, alternate sources of income to um, fishing. And then I think, us in a nutshell i'm trying to think of anything else
0: <laughs> it's quite a big nutshell but... <laughs> yeah yeah you guys yeah. are definitely yeah. involved in some really incredible incredible work you know creating opportunities for the people that live there and also doing your very best to try and influence the lives of the animals that also call that place home you know for me personally i feel like it's such a shame that a lot of these Issues are not talked about in kind of mainstream media or aren't readily available to the general public. You know, I think if you are passionate about marine life, then these are issues that you might already be aware of. But if you're not within our kind of bubble, it's quite difficult to find that information. So, how do you think that we can start bringing these issues into more of a general awareness?
1: I think podcasts like these <laughs> do a really good, great job, job of that. Um, and I think it is about crossing that boundary between, um, science and like social media. I think science communication these days is like one of the most important parts of science. Like yeah. it's great that, and I think it's definitely been, it's been quite jarring for me going back into academia, having spent like five years purely in the NGO world. Um, and like kind of, you know, <laughs> I hesitate to it, but like normal job roles in terms of like yeah um, and academia and then going back into academia um and it's quite there is a massive disconnect there which is um a big problem uh people need to know what science is being done and what yeah. the science means um and there needs to be some kind of link like ideally it would be so great to see uh funded opportunities for masters for PhDs with a year of communication attached to it like mm. there should be usually all the funding it's it's great and they fund like you know your tuition fees and your living expenses and yeah you do 100% need that to be able to complete uh whatever kind of degree you're talking about but and that is competitive enough and I understand that there's limitations on funding, but, but there should be a year of communicating your project, funding for travel and funding for conferences and stuff like that. And there should be some kind of funding available to communicate your project because that's ultimately money talks. And it's the only way that realistically you're going to get more people communicating what they're doing in the academic world. Um, but overall, I think like there's such a limitation on environmental funding, um, there needs to be more commitment from governments to and private companies and stuff to put their money where their mouth is. I think Mm -hmm. there's like so much talk around climate change and around all these environmental problems that we're facing, Mm -hmm. but there's very little financial commitment from the big entities to actually do much about it. Um, And we kind of sit in a broken world where, you know, morally corrupt people are being paid a lot of money (laughs) to, to do stuff that's extremely dodgy um, like you look at some of the uh, let's i mean ceos of oil companies are being paid crazy amounts and no one bats an eyelid but then a ceo of a charity is paid and like a small amount compared to what they if they were in the corporate world compared yeah. to what they would be paid so if you look at like oxfam or unicef or any of the big dogs a lot of people lose, like uh, they get angry about mm. seeing a CEO's salary being, uh, you know, six figures in a in a charity. But that person is running a massive business, essentially, because the charity is business. Yeah. And if they were doing that in a corporate world, they'd be paid, they'd be paid like three or four times the amount, mm-hmm. and they've made that like personal decision that they want to give back and you know live a morally more acceptable life. Mm-hmm. But why are we getting angry at being paid money for doing an amazing job and doing something good and not getting angry at the oil execs that are being paid loads of money yeah. for breaking the world? Um, so I think that just needs to be this complete um I know it's it's very like dreamy and pipe pipeline, uh, pipe dream type stuff that I'm talking about, but there needs to just be this like big revamp of society yeah. and where we're putting our values because. Um, Currently, it doesn't make sense and it is resulting, I mean, among other things, but the environmental sector uh, is seriously underfunded because of this, Um, and it's kind of nuts uh, that environmental scientists and environmental charities and anyone kind of working in this space is not being paid to even like science communicators, like there should be money available for people to create podcasts to be able to communicate this science. Like yeah. why isn't that happening? Because there's a, there's a massive kind of gap. Um, mm-hmm. And really that gap needs to be funded and then people will actually do it. And it needs to just become a normal part of a job. Like that would just be your job and you're paid to do it kind of thing.
0: Um yeah absolutely and i think as well you know it just it needs to become more of a priority not just for you know the industry professionals but also you know if you're talking about the big guns like climate change it just needs to become more of a priority for literally every single person because it affects every single person on this earth you know i think we can get really bogged down by thinking about or worrying about things that are slightly less important uh, and forget you know the genuine big challenges but To finish this podcast on a positive note, uh, what are some of the nice changes that you have observed on the ground in Mozambique for both the animals and the people that you're trying to help there?
1: Oh, good question. Um, We're still a young charity, so there haven't been huge amounts of uh, environmental changes because Mm -hmm. um, conservation science is kind of notoriously slow going. Um, (laughs) so uh, i mean we've had some amazing interactions and the humpback whales especially they come very close um and that's pretty incredible to see uh, pretty breathtaking which is one of my favorite parts of my job um i would say um our community is just such a pleasure to work with like our local community is just a dream um so i think obviously swimming lessons are probably the easiest in terms of like you're teaching a kid to swim they can't mm-hmm. swim at the beginning of the lesson they can swim at the end of the lesson or at least they can float um <laughs> so it's very rewarding to see kind of and know the impact that you're having on someone's life and the fact yeah. that you could be um saving them in the future essentially like if they fall off a boat and they've learned how to swim you've saved a life through your kind of work um and i think that's extremely rewarding um swimming lessons are really can be really overwhelming because they're our most oversubscribed program we have mm-hmm. so many kids come to our swimming lessons but um I think it is one of the most rewarding that we have like initiatives that we have because you can just see the difference hugely um which is great um I'd say also like our team has expanded in the last few years on the ground and it's uh, our I love our staff like everyone's just we're one big family um and that's uh camaraderie, I think is the okay. word that I'm looking for, or like the just the vibe. <laughs> I know that sounds really airy fairy, but like, <laughs> the vibe of the team. Like I really enjoy working with um all of the Love the Oceans team and, and we are one big family. Um mm-hmm. And yeah, we have disagreements and all of the rest of it, but like ultimately we all have each other's back and it's really refreshing and lovely to like work in a group of people that are all working towards the same thing and have the same values um, and all of that kind of stuff. So I would say that's really important as well. Um, But hopefully in the future, we'll be seeing uh, the product of our work environmentally as well. So I'd love to see... um, our corals corals kind of recovering um and uh the fishing methods completely like we're working towards net elimination at the moment because netting is so unsustainable in the area so ultimately like in the next kind of uh five years we'd love to see like that completed um and no nets being used uh so yeah we have high hopes for the future there's a lot there's a lot of good stuff coming down the pipeline hopefully
0: yeah and if there's anyone listening to this who would like to get involved or help out with any of the causes that you have mentioned where can they find more information
1: um so uh, people can go on our website to find out more so lovetheoceans.org um and then we also have our social media which is just at love the oceans uh we have all of them i'm trying my best with tiktok but um I probably don't upload videos as regularly as I should. Um, But we uh, do have Instagram as our probably biggest platform and Facebook, um, so people can just check that out. Um, They can do all sorts. They can adopt whale sharks. They can, um, you know, donate and they can book on our expeditions too. So lots of different options.
0: Yeah. Well, Francesca, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat. And we wish you the absolute best of luck with all of the projects that you're currently involved in.
1: No worries. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and I will see you next week.